moms. I want to echo Dustin's sentiment uh, from a moment ago. Thank you so much for joining with us today, celebrating this uh, special day that we set aside to uh, honor you. Thank you for coming and joining with us this morning to celebrate that day. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like for you to turn with me in them to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And we're going to continue the series that we've been in from... Uh, from the seven, called the seven sayings of the cross, in which we are looking at the seven final things that Jesus said as he died on the cross. But before we look there, I'd like to just say a quick word of prayer. Would you bow with me for prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we do indeed celebrate mothers this morning, and we thank you for each one of them that are represented here today. Perhaps in the last 50 years of America, there's never been a more important day to celebrate motherhood than this particular Mother's Day. Lord, as we look into the scriptures this morning, speak to us powerfully. Speak to us about who you are. Speak to us about who we are in relationship to you. And, um, Lord, give us ears to hear. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. A couple of summers ago, I had been outside working around the house when a summer thunderstorm uh, came blowing through. After the storm was over, the sun came back out. And so I decided it was way too wet uh, to work around the house, but not too wet to go walk nine holes of golf at a course near my home. It was very hot. The rain had made it very humid. I went out, hit a bucket of balls on the driving range, then teed off on the first hole. By about the fourth hole, it was so hot and so humid, I'd sweat through everything I was wearing. I'd forgotten to bring anything to drink, but I thought, well, that's okay. There's coolers out on the course, and I'll get something to drink there. Except, as it turned out, all the coolers on the course were bone dry. By the sixth hole, I noticed that my heart was pumping very, very fast. And when I would bend over to put a tee in the ground and straighten back up, I'd get dizzy and feel like I was going to pass out. By the seventh hole, I was seeing a big spot in front of my eyes. The walk between the eighth green and the ninth tee box was longer than normal and about halfway uh, between the two, I was breathing so hard, and my heart was pumping so hard, and I was so dizzy that I took a knee so that I didn't just face plant right into the cart path. Guy rides by in a cart. I try to pretend like I'm looking for something on the ground rather than just humble myself and ask him for a ride to the parking lot. Looking back, I don't know why I was so embarrassed. He was the one riding in the cart. I wasn't, but nevertheless, uh, I didn't ask for help. I knelt there on the ground for a bit, thinking it was a, a long walk back to my car, and frankly wondering uh, if I would make it. I had my phone, could have called the clubhouse, could have called my wife for that matter, but again, pride. After about five minutes, I got to my feet, slowly started walking, still extremely dizzy, heart still pounding, really out of breath, having trouble seeing. To get to my car, I had to walk the length of the par five ninth hole, and I thought, well, if I die out here, I might as well die playing the hole, so I did. Turns out, I'm a much better golfer when I'm dizzy and can't see very well. I birdied the hole. 
Finally made it to my car, turned the air on, sat there for a few moments uh, trying to cool off. Honestly, uh, I shouldn't have driven home, but I did. When I got home, I, I didn't want to alarm my wife, so I just sat down on a chair in the kitchen. But I couldn't even sit. I was so dizzy. Couldn't get a breath. And so I just, I laid down on the kitchen floor. And it's hard to ignore your husband lying in the middle of the kitchen floor, breathing heavily, sopping wet. And as you can imagine, she was alarmed. She just kept suggesting that she call 911. But I kept talking her out of it, promising I'd be okay in a few minutes. Knowing that I'd been out on the golf course, she asked me, how much have you had to drink today? Well, wait, I don't want you to misunderstand what she was asking. She, she, was, she was asking about hydration. She, was, she wasn't asking about, about you know, drinking. But she, she was wondering, you know, how much had I had to drink? Because she'd, she'd warned me for years that I needed to drink more fluids. And as I lay there on the floor, I was thinking about what I had to drink that day. And I could remember having milk with my cereal in the morning, maybe a half, of, a half of a cup of coffee, and that was it. And I couldn't rem remember really drinking much of anything the day before either. And so my wife immediately started giving me water to drink, and she alerted my son to quickly buy some Gatorade from a convenience store to get some electrolytes into me. And as it turns out, I think you probably have figured it out already, this whole episode was nothing more than a self-inflicted case of terrible dehydration. And as I drank, I slowly started to feel better. I felt really, really foolish. Once it was clear I was out of the woods, out of, a both, out of both a sense of relief from worry and anger at my foolishness, Amy pointed her finger at me and said, one of these days you're going to die of dehydration and don't you come running to me when you do. <laughs> I made a mental note of that. Promised I would start drinking more. I wonder if you're any better at recognizing your thirst. You good and hydrated this morning? Or are you thirsty? And would you know? Well, I said that we're going to continue this morning in our series called The Seven Sayings of the Cross. I want to look this morning at the fifth saying, the fifth thing that Jesus said on the cross, found here in John chapter 19. Of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' death, John is the only one who includes this fifth saying of Jesus on the cross. Now, there are other commonalities between the accounts, of course, but this is the only one found, or this one is only found uh, in the Gospel of John. I know this series has been a little broken up, so let me just remind you of the four previous sayings of Jesus on the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That was the first. He also said to one of the men crucified on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And then speaking to his friend John and his mother Mary from the cross, he said to them, this is your son, this is your mother. And then Jesus cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, now let's look at the fifth saying. John chapter 19, verse 28. John says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. And that's the fifth saying of Jesus on the cross. I am thirsty. Three words in English. 
But in the Greek New Testament, it's only one word, the word dipsao. I am thirsty. Now, if you think about those other four sayings of Jesus that we've seen so far that I mentioned a moment ago, does it seem odd to you that John would zoom in on Jesus saying simply, I am thirsty? Does it seem odd to you? The other statements seem, they, they're so profound theologically. Why would, why would John zoom in on something so ordinary, so routine, so commonplace as being thirsty? Well, let me suggest to you that this one word that Jesus utters is much more theologically profound than you might imagine. Let me show you why. Let me give you three reasons why this phrase, I am thirsty, is so incredibly profound. First, this phrase, I am thirsty, points to Jesus' humanity his humanity. You know, one of the central assertions of Orthodox Christianity is that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Now, uh, what's, what's interesting is that when you think about uh, people attacking Jesus, you usually think about people outside of Christianity who can't accept that Jesus was God. You know, they're very very willing to accept that yes, a, a historical man named Jesus lived, but they have trouble with the fact that he was divine. But what you might be surprised by is that the earliest followers of Jesus struggled more with his humanity than with his divinity. In fact, one of the earliest heresies about Jesus came from within the church, and it's centered on this very issue of Jesus' humanity. The heresy was called docetism. It came from the Greek word dokain, which means to seem, to seem. And the idea behind this heresy was that Jesus only seemed human, but that he didn't really have a physical body. His body, according to this heresy, was only an illusion. What people saw was just a ghost. And I wonder if now you can see the significance of that phrase, I am thirsty. Because ghosts don't get thirsty. In John's later writings in the New Testament, you can see him combating early forms of this heresy. For instance, here's how John begins his uh, first letter in the New Testament. He says, that which, he's talking about Jesus here, and he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have, notice what he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. You can see how much trouble that John is going to in order to make it clear that Jesus had a physical body, that he was human in every sense of the word. Now, uh, you might be tempted to think to yourself, what difference does this really make? I mean, isn't this just an obscure theological debate? Why does it matter if Jesus was really human or not? Uh, many years ago, a friend of mine died. We were uh, in seminary together. He was young, only 32 years old, married for just under five years, had a couple of little girls who were too young to understand what was happening to their daddy. He had been stricken with cancer. His young wife, Rebecca, recounted his last moments on earth and her last moments with him. 
And her description was included in the program at the funeral. And here's what she said. She said, we had a joyous time Sunday evening as all of Mark's family arrived. We sat for two hours singing and praising our Lord and just sharing with Mark how he had touched our lives. Monday morning, wearied from trying to breathe, Mark asked me if I could please get something as he was desperately aching everywhere and just wanted to rest. The doctor said morphine was the drug of choice, so we knew he would be pretty out of it after he took it. So I told him what a great husband and father he was. And after taking the morphine, he laid on my lap for about four hours, struggling for every breath. And then at 1.30 p.m., he breathed his last breath on earth. You know, the question is, why did Mark have to die so young? And you can imagine his wife, Rebecca, asking that question, can't you? Wondering that. Why did he have to die so young? Do you think it would make any difference to Rebecca to know that while she may never know the reason for her husband's suffering, and for her suffering, for her daughter's suffering, do you think it would make any difference to her to know that Jesus knew what it was like to suffer? because he too was fully human, that he knew what it felt like to be racked with pain, to struggle, with, to struggle for breath for hours on end as people being crucified did. I think that would have made any difference to her. See, how could Jesus identify with our suffering if he wasn't human? How could Jesus offer the solution to the world's brutality and violence if in some way he didn't experience that? On the cross, Jesus enters, because he was fully human, he enters the depths of human pain and suffering and death. And it's because of that that we can be confident that nothing in our lives lives outside of Christ's redeeming love. And so these we see in these words this comfort in knowing that Jesus was fully human, fully God, yes, but not a ghost, really fully human. And when Jesus says, I am thirsty, we're reminded of that truth of Jesus' humanity. But that's not all. By including this statement of Jesus' thirst, John points us to not only Jesus' humanity, but he points us to Jesus' clarity, uh, to Jesus' clarity. And what do I mean by that? Well, one of the ways that Jesus has often been portrayed in writing and in movies, you may have, you may have read accounts like this, you may have seen movies like this, Jesus is often portrayed as a confused, somewhat bewildered, mystic, who is unsure of his identity, yet valiantly confronting unforeseen circumstances that are beyond his control. I read an article recently entitled, The Identity Crisis of Christ, and that's how the 
author of this article portrayed Jesus, unsure of who he was, having an identity crisis, not knowing what he was here for. Martin Scorsese portrayed Jesus this way in his movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, back in the late 80s, confused, bewildered, uncertain of his identity. But I want you to notice again what John says just before and just after he recalls Jesus saying, I am thirsty. Verse 28, read it later, knowing that everything had now been finished. And so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they, the soldiers around him, soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, what does John mean when he says, so that scripture would be fulfilled? Well, John is referring to two passages from the Old Testament found specifically in the book of Psalms. Psalm 69 is one of them. And in Psalm 69, uh, David wrote this. He said, you know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed all my enemies are before you scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless I looked for sympathy but there was none for comforters but I found none they put gall in my food and they gave me vinegar for my thirst Psalm 22 Psalm 22 is another Psalm of David pointing to the Messiah he wrote similarly my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Now, both of those were intended to point to Jesus as the Messiah and his death on the cross. And so it is no accident that John records Jesus saying, I am thirsty, nor is it an accident that Jesus says it. The point is that Jesus wasn't confused at all about his identity. He understood quite clearly who he was and what he had come to do. He says these words, I am thirsty, intentionally pointing to himself as the fulfillment of those scriptures. He wasn't a helpless victim. He wasn't a confused and bewildered martyr. He is in complete control of what is happening to him. He was the almighty, sovereign son of God, voluntarily and knowingly submitting himself to humiliation and suffering, laying down his life of his own accord. He is completely devoted and committed to the Father's program for his life. To die on this cross in this way at this time for your sins, and for mine. Not confused about anything here. He's not bewildered. Not trying to figure out who he is. He's not having an identity crisis. He knows who he is and what he came for. And again, you might ask, why does this matter? Imagine for the moment that you and I are walking across the street and I clumsily trip and get hit by a car. My family, in an attempt to make my death seem more heroic than it was, writes in the obituary that instead of just clumsily tripping and getting hit by a car, they write it and they say that out of great heroism and nobility, I threw myself in front of the car, sacrificing myself for you so that you wouldn't get hit. Now, when you read that, would you suddenly feel deeply loved by me? Of course not. You'd think that's a lie. He was just clumsy. Similarly, if Jesus had no idea who he was and what he was doing on the cross and he just clumsily and confusedly fell into being the Messiah, 
There is no way in which you could say that Christ's death was a personal demonstration of his love for you. The Apostle Paul couldn't have written this. He couldn't have said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, you can't, you can't say that it was a personal thing. You can't say that Jesus loved you so much that he died for you if he just clumsily fell into this. But because Jesus knew the scriptures, understood exactly who he was, and voluntarily submitted to God's program for him, the death of Christ is not only the demonstration of God's love for you, but also the supreme expression of Christ's love for you. It's very, very personal, you see. It's not an accident. Jesus had total clarity about who he was and why he was on the cross. And when he said, I am thirsty, he said those words intentionally for your sake to make it clear that he was the fulfillment of all of prophetic scripture and that he was doing this personally for you. For you. I am thirsty. Three words, English. One word, Greek. Speaks to Jesus' humanity. Speaks to Jesus' clarity. He knew who he was. Last point. We not only get in these words a statement of Jesus' humanity and his clarity, but we get in these words, I am thirsty. Those words also point to the soul's central reality. They point to the soul's central reality. The Bible has uh, a great deal to say about thirst. Sometimes it's referring to physical dehydration. Sometimes, though, it's used as a metaphor for the spiritual emptiness that comes when God is not at the center of your life. Back in the 80s and uh, the early 90s, we used to sing this praise chorus that I just dreaded singing every time we sang it. It was based on a verse from Psalm 42, and the verse goes like this. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You can see that the psalmist is using thirst as a metaphor for spiritual emptiness. Now, if you were back in, if you were in church back in those days, you might remember the song. We thought we were so hip and so modern singing the song instead of singing hymns. And I'm a terrible singer, and Randy Wright is going to cringe, but I'm going to sing just the first little chorus of it. It goes like this. As the deer panteth, I, I know it sounds terrible. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Now, funny things, I don't know why we thought that was so modern. We were literally using King James Version uh, words in the song, panteth and, and longeth. Anyway, I just hated singing that song. And, and uh, do, you know, do you know why I hated singing that song? I hated singing it because I didn't feel like it was true about me. Like I didn't feel like I could sing it honestly. I was a believer in Christ, but I didn't feel what the psalmist seemed to feel. I didn't feel like my soul panted for God, like I thirsted for God. I felt like a spiritual failure, and so I hated singing that song. I always thought, well, the psalmist has reached some level of spirituality that I haven't reached. I can't feel my thirst for God. 
It wasn't until many years later when I realized that the psalm was declaring a fundamental truth about every human soul. See, what he's saying is that every human soul thirsts for God. Yeah, the psalmist understood this. Whether a person can identify their spiritual thirst, whether they feel it or not, whether a person knows it or not, every soul is thirsty for God. That's the central reality of the human soul. My soul thirsts for God. And so does Johnny Depp's and Tiger Woods and Vladimir Putin's. And so does yours. But be careful, be careful. Because it's not just believing in God that the psalmist is talking about here. You can believe in God and yet you can mistake other things for the deepest longings of your soul. For instance, some of you on Mother's Day might be thinking, if I could just have a child, I'd be happy. Others of you might be thinking, if I could just meet my spouse and get married, I'd be happy. Others of you might be saying to yourself, if I could just get a better job, I would be happy. Nothing wrong with desiring a child or wanting to get married, wanting a better job. It's just that none of those are the central reality of your soul. None of those will satisfy the thirst of your soul. You will find yourself thirsty again. The psalmist isn't talking about just believing in God. He's talking about the longing for God as the central reality of every human soul. The Scottish-Canadian theologian, Dr. James Houston, expressed it this way in his book, Heart's Desire. He said that the unsatisfied longing for God is what drives human beings above all else. Thirst is a word that expresses Emptiness on the one hand and desire on the other. The central reality of your soul is that you thirst for God, not just to believe in him, but to know him, to experience him, to know him intimately, to realize this is the core longing, the central reality of your soul. And what I came to realize is that I was as bad at noticing my spiritual thirst as I was my physical thirst that day on the golf course. And frankly, most of us aren't very good at identifying our spiritual thirstiness. A pastor by the name of Craig Barnes put it this way in his book, Sacred Thirst. He said, because the parched soul is such an intense place, it is difficult and relatively rare to spend enough time in it to recognize its yearnings. Do you recognize how thirsty your soul is? How can you identify thirst? Charles Spurgeon once said, thirst is an insatiable longing after one of the essentials of life. There is no reasoning with this longing, no forgetting it, no despising it, no overcoming it by stoical indifference. Thirst will be heard. The whole person must yield to its power. And so you see, if you want to be able to slake your spiritual thirst, if you want to become more aware of it, 
Look for the empty places in your life that are crying out to be filled. That's how you recognize thirst. For instance, lust is a sign of emptiness. So is greed. Loneliness. Those are all signs of emptiness. Thirst. You know that feeling when you go away to someplace beautiful on vacation? And it's your last night, and there's this sick feeling in your stomach at the thought of going back home and going back into the routine of everyday life. You know that feeling? That's a sign of emptiness. That's a longing. That's thirst. All of those are empty places that create thirst. The problem is that we try to fill them with things that will leave us thirsting again. I mentioned earlier that John is the only gospel writer to include this statement of Jesus' thirst. Thirst comes up six different times in this gospel of John, the most famous of which is John chapter 4. Jesus sits down near a well, and a woman comes to draw water from the well. He asks her for a drink. They have a little back-and-forth conversation, and then he says this to her. Everyone who drinks this water, he says, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water swelling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You see what John is doing when he refers to Jesus' thirst here on the cross? It's a callback to this very conversation in John 4. He's saying that Jesus was talking about himself when he spoke to this woman about the water that would keep you from ever thirsting again. And you see what Jesus is doing? He's using physical thirst to point to spiritual thirst that is the central reality of the soul. He's saying to you, he's saying to me this morning, if you put the bucket of your heart down into anything more than the love of God, more than the glory of God, more than the beauty and the comfort of God, put it into anything else, you will thirst again. Try to slake your soul with anything else, with sex, with money, with children, with career, none of which are bad things to desire, by the way. But if you mistake those desires for the central reality of your soul, you'll get thirsty again. Because the core desire, the central reality of the soul is a longing, a thirst for deep knowledge of God. And so when Jesus says, I am thirsty... He's actually combining physical thirst and the metaphor of spiritual thirst into one. Now, I just want you to think about one last thing. What happened to Jesus before this on the cross? Do you remember? He cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The whole earth goes dark, everything around him. He's been shut out from God. God has forsaken him. He cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? He, he believes in God, of course, through the whole time. 
But he's been shut out of deep fellowship with God. Why? Why was he shut out of deep fellowship with God? Because on the cross, he became sin for you and me. And so he feels the thirst of his soul and he cries out, I am thirsty. Yes, physical thirst, but more profound than just physical thirst. Spiritual thirst. He was lonely for his father. On the cross, Jesus Christ was getting what the whole human race deserved for all of its evil. Jesus Christ was getting what everybody deserved for all of their sins. Jesus is dying of thirst so that you can have living water. And of course, the irony of all of this is that this is the one who, as Genesis chapter 1 puts it, made the expanse and separated the waters from the waters, the one who gathered the waters together in one place and called the dry land earth and the waters seas. This is the one who is literally dying for a cup of water. Are you good and hydrated this morning? Or are you thirsty? As the deer pants for the water, so, so your soul thirsts for God. Whether you feel it or not, know it or not, want to believe it or not, doesn't matter. That's the central reality of your soul. Would you bow with me for prayer? Any of us here, Lord, uh, believe in Christ but are unaware of how deeply we thirst for intimacy with you. And we try to fill that thirst with all sorts of other things. Lord, in the days ahead, would you make us more profoundly aware of this thirst that we have and how we try to fill it with other things? And would you let us drink deeply, drink deeply of the living water that you provide? For those that are here this morning that, I don't know, maybe they don't even want to Maybe they don't believe this is true of them. Uh, they'd, you know, rather argue that they don't have a deep thirst or longing for you. They maybe don't want to see that you died on the cross for their sins. I pray that in your way, in your gentle way, that you would bring them to an awareness of how deeply you love them and that this was a personal thing. Dying on the cross was a personal thing that you did for them specifically. They may think to themselves they're such a good person, they didn't need this. On the other hand, they may think to themselves, I've done so many bad things, you can't possibly love me. Would you show them in the way that only you can that this was personal for you and that you did this for them? And we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, and we affirm that the deepest longing of our soul is for you. And it's in your name that we pray. 